Thanks, Ollie. Good evening, everyone. Uh, as I've been introduced, my name is Tony. I'm an intern here at Oakton, part of the youth leadership team. Uh, if you regularly only come to the 6 p.m. service, I apologise if you haven't seen me much. I had a baby recently, so just adjusting to that. But I um, hope to see all of your faces uh, more soon. So excited to be sharing in Esther. I'm really sad that it's only three weeks. Like, it's such an awesome book, more than, than I ever thought there could be. Um, and I've loved uh, preparing a sermon for it. Uh, could I just also just ask, quiet, just in the quiet of your heart, just pray for my voice. It's been a bit uh, volatile the last couple of days, so just pray that I get through. Um, I have a, a nephew called Hudson, and he has, uh, he has autism. And naturally, he has some very funny mannerisms. He's an um, incredibly sweet boy, but uh, his vocabulary isn't very um, broad. But what he does know, he gets from his shows and movies. And something that he does that... Um, he doesn't do it so much anymore, but he does this thing. It's like, wait, wait. But it has to be, it has to be looking at you with the corner of his eye, the hand, and the foot. Wait, wait. <laughs> And if you don't know what he's talking about, like, what, are we, what am I waiting for, Hudson? And you keep doing what he doesn't want you to do, keep going the direction he doesn't want you to do, then he gets really fired up. Wait! Stop! <laughs> and I don't know about you, but when Christians say things like, oh, you just gotta, you just got to wait on the Lord, brother, you know, just wait on him. And they quote uh, Psalm 27, verse 14 to you, which... Um, is a bit of a theme that I'm focusing on tonight. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he will strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I feel like crying out, wait for what? What am I waiting for? That's the whole point of waiting. You don't know what you're waiting for. And I start to get anxious about, and you start to imagine this picture that maybe God's getting anxious with you, and it's like my nephew going, wait, wait, stop. And as I was thinking and, and looking at Esther, you realize as you look deeply into the book of Esther, there's actually a lot of waiting in this story. When you come to the climax of the narrative that Ollie read for us before, um, in the middle of the book, Esther is actually approaching the king, and for her, she's been doing a lot of waiting up until this point, waiting patiently for something to happen. And when Mordecai says, Maybe you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, there's been a lot of waiting for this moment. But when she gets to this moment, she waits a little bit more. She has to wait to see what uh, Xerxes going to do, what uh, King Ahasuerus going to do. Uh, just a disclaimer, I'm going to be calling him Xerxes tonight, just so it rolls off the tongue better for my uncultured language. But if you take a moment to study the book of Esther. Study the timeline, you'll see all these gaps in time. It's a fast-paced story, but there's actually a lot of gaps in time. There's a three-year gap between Xerxes dumping Vashti and then beginning the procedure to look for a new wife. Esther spends a whole year um, in an Indota spa, getting prepared to go before the king. She spends five years as queen of Persia before this great tragedy where this decree is written uh, for her people to be destroyed. Esther did a lot of waiting. And we're talking about the subject of waiting, and we as humans 
we, we, we are impatient. In our brokenness, we struggle to wait. And I'm sure most of us would have seen the, the marshmallow test with little toddlers, where a toddler's left in a room and told if they can wait, uh, they can have two marshmallows instead of one. And some kids can do it. They can push through, but it's hard. And we struggle to wait 10 minutes, let alone 30 days or one year, three years or five years or longer. But unlike the kids in the marshmallow test who are told they'll get double the reward, it would seem and it would also be true often that our waiting doesn't have a reward at the end of it. Sometimes it would seem that there's no silver lining to our waiting. The conclusion will not be a good one, if there is a conclusion at all. Because the point is, we struggle to wait for what we cannot see. We struggle to wait for what we cannot see. Because in the book of Esther, it seems as though the Lord is absent. And it's hard for us to wait on the Lord when it seems as if he's not there. When we read Esther with hindsight, we, we lose the gravity of the narrative. Imagine being in Esther's shoes. Imagine she's been waiting, waiting, waiting. But for what? Living as an exile in the palace, being taken from her home as likely a young woman, forced into what was essentially human trafficking. And she's, she's married to a tool. This, I feel like Esther's the flavor of the month. West have done a series on Esther. We're doing a series. Um, there was this awful movie being talked about on YouTube called One Night with the King, and it portrayed Xerxes as this reasonable white guy with long hair and, you know, with half a brain. But Xerxes, as successful as he was, as far as history is concerned, he was just a buffoon. And Esther had to be married to this guy. But for what? Imagine her frustration with life. Why am I here? What is the purpose of me becoming Queen of Persia? Esther wouldn't have been able to see what her purpose in her position was. And when we come to this part of the book, where she finally does have to make a decision to actually do something with a purpose, after all these years of waiting, she has to wait again. She has to wait and see, what will Xerxes do? Will he extend the golden scepter or will he cut off my head? Even the Jewish people were forced to wait 11 months and Haman decreed with the king that once the decree was made 11 months from then, then they would be destroyed. And Haman did that, I think, to, to build the dread, the, the, the waiting for the conclusion of this awful occurrence that was going to happen to them. Because waiting is a cruel game. Have you ever felt that way? Can you relate to the story of Esther? You're studying a tough degree and you're grinding it out, but you don't know that at the end of all of this waiting, of grinding out and being patiently doing this degree, whether you're even going to get a job. And you have to wait to see if you're going to get a job after all this study. You're waiting and you're waiting. You've been waiting for this guy or girl to reciprocate feelings for you, and you've been putting off um, other romantic advances because you've invested in this other person, and you've been waiting and waiting, and it's been two hours and they haven't replied. I'm just kidding. Some of you have been waiting months, especially some of you girls, you've been waiting for the guy to make a move. 
but we've in, you've invested in someone and you're waiting to see where God will lead it, but you don't know what the conclusion will be. Some of us, I know, have had family issues or relationship issues where you've been patiently trying to, you don't know what to do, and you're waiting and waiting for it to run its course. And just when you think it's over, it flares up again. You've been trying to have a good attitude at work, but there's still no joy, and you're waiting for that joy to come. And in all your waiting, God seems absent. You don't know what else you're supposed to do, so you just wait. How torturous is waiting. But for what? What am I waiting for? God, what do you want, to, want me to do? What, to, what do I need to know? And you're trying to break through to God. You're trying to break the silence. And that's what Esther is like. You read the book of Esther, and it seems like God is silent. It seems like God is absent. Where is he? His name isn't even mentioned. And that's hard enough in Esther, but imagine... You come to church every week, you read his word, you sing songs about him. His name is mentioned everywhere, even in conversations, but yet he couldn't seem any more, he couldn't seem more further away. When you read Esther without these presuppositions, you you have to read it and wonder why is Esther even in Susa? She's not in Israel. Why does her beauty work against her? Why does Haman get prominence over Mordecai when Mordecai deserved it? Why does Haman come into the position of power where he can deceive this volatile Xerxes? Do you ever find that you're waiting, in your waiting your suffering gets worse? And if it's possible, God seems even more absent and more distant. Uh, for the early days for Joe and I, it wasn't so rosy. And um, I expressed my feelings to Joe um, early 2013, and she made me crawl on my guts to prove my love to her. She gave me nothing. She was so cold. And it was getting to the point where I was getting frustrated and hurt by it, and we both sort of came to this unspoken conclusion that we need to have a conversation this certain night after bowling with our friends that it's, it's over, whatever hope there was for a romantic uh, relationship, it's, it, it will be over. But for whatever reason, well, I know the reason, one of our friends wouldn't stop talking, we never got to have that conversation. <laughs> and so I left that night, and I went away for work that week, went to a shearing school, <clears throat> and I had to wait for what I believed would be a negative conclusion. I thought it was over. And the tor- if the torture of waiting wasn't enough, I had to learn how to shear again. My gear wasn't running right. My handpiece ran hot. I got a blister from here to there. And when it popped, the agony of that blister. And then to top it off, my grandpa passed away that week. God couldn't have been more absent. It was like the the enemy was just rubbing salt in the wounds. If the waiting wasn't torturous enough, he he dialed up the suffering on on top of that. And you hear things like, wait on the Lord. How do I wait on the Lord if he seems absent? We struggle to wait for what we cannot see. Because in our waiting, God seems so absent sometimes. We know, however, as we do read Esther in hindsight, 
that God isn't absent from the story of Esther at all. He is very present and he is weaving all these intricate details together for his glory. And God may seem absent in your story and you're waiting for him to show up, but he already has. He's already there. Think about some of these intricate details of the book. Now, there's approximately a three-year gap between Vashti being dumped and Esther coming onto the scene. Okay? In that period, that three-year period, Xerxes, who was this insecure, spoilt brat, took the biggest army that the world had ever seen, one million men, to go and defeat those rotten Greeks for rebelling against the Persians. He takes them across the Aegean Sea to try and save time. The Aegean Sea is too rough, so get this, he gets men to wade out into the water of the Aegean Sea and whip the water 300 times to punish the sea god for not cooperating with the king of kings, Xerxes the Great. This guy was a buffoon. And then he's humiliated by the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, nearly defeating his one million strong army. And then eventually he runs home with a tail between his legs after being defeated at Marathon. So imagine the scene. Xerxes is walking around all the splendor of his palace garden, sulking, kicking stones, and he's got all of this around him, but he's so insecure and he just wants acceptance. And he goes, man, I miss Vashti. I know. I'll get all of the pretty girls of Susa together and I'll sleep with them all. And the one that does the best, I'll, I'll marry her. Now, how messed up is that, those three years, what transpired in those three years? But God took the awful situation of war. Thousands upon thousands of people died because of Xerxes' ego. He took an unstable, superstitious, childish, powerful drunkard and orchestrated it all and weaved it all together so that Esther, who just so happens to have pleased the king the most, she was on the throne as queen when the people, God's people, the Jews, needed him most. Did you know that events that have happened a world away or an age ago affect you now? Tiny, tiny details, like a, like a young man in Germany read Romans with a new light, and here we are sitting in a Protestant church. That young man changed everything today, as an example. Tiny details, tiny, tiny, tiny details, like a tiny little virus in one bat, in one wet market, in the massive country of China is affecting the whole world, and it's affecting you. Some sermons or books that have changed my life or have changed your life were written by someone who God spoke to them he weaved a story together in their life and then it spoke to you. Because God is providently weaving together the story of the whole world and in turn weaving together the story of his people, you. In your waiting, God has been writing your story. I was, I was the youngest, I was, I am the youngest of six kids. And I remember asking my mum, how many kids she wanted when she got married, and she said six. And we prayed for six, and we got six, and we, our hearts were full, and we were done. But mum had three miscarriages. And what used to keep me up sometimes at night when I was little was that if any of those miscarriages, if those babies had survived, I wouldn't be here. You see, God has 
used hard experience from other people, their stories, for his purpose in your life. Take a look with me at some of the crucial details of the narrative that we read tonight. Mordecai makes Esther aware of this decree orchestrated by Haman, this decree to destroy the Jews. He says, maybe you came to the position for such a time as this, and Esther courageously goes to the king, not knowing if she would lose her life or not. But if I was Esther, and I'd made the decision, I'm going to go to my husband, I would have just, I think I would have just gone to the outside the palace garden to be like, Xerxes, husband, can you help out my people? But she doesn't do that. She doesn't barge in there impatiently. And after all this waiting, she's willing to wait a little bit longer. She waits three days, as it says in that text, on the third day, after waiting 30 days to see him. Now, why would she do that? Who knows? But if she had gone in on the 31st or the 32nd or the 34th day, who knows what Xerxes she might have met. Xerxes, who... Uh, got so upset because his previous wife didn't come to him summoned, what's he going to do with this new wife who came to him unsummoned? Is he going to chop off her head? Did Esther act out of wisdom? It doesn't say. But regardless of the way Esther did it, God was provident in the details for his glory. When Esther does blessedly get an audience with the king, instead of just telling him what the problem is and what she wants from him, even after he says, tell me what you want, I'll, gi- I'll give it to you, even half of my kingdom. Instead of just saying what the problem was, um, instead of just saying, yeah, me and my people, they're larger in danger, can you help us out, please? She does what most wives would do. It's like, well, I'd really love dinner. Come to dinner. Now, why would she do that? Why would she prolong it further? Maybe it was to get Haman and Xerxes alone. Fair enough, but at the first banquet, Xerxes asked her again, what can I do for you? And the suspense is building. Is she going to tell him? Instead she goes, another banquet, tomorrow night. And if I was Xerxes, I'd just be, just tell me, woman, why? Why can't you just spit it out? Maybe she was tickling his ego we don't know. And some would say it was wisdom, and I would be careful to say that because it doesn't say in the text that Esther was acting out of obedience or faithfulness. We don't know that for sure. But regardless of Esther's motives and why she did what she did, God used it all to weave together his story for his purposes. If there hadn't been two banquets Esther, and Esther told him, the king at the first banquet, he might have reacted differently. Haman may have defended himself successfully. But the events that transpired between the first banquet and the second, and if you read the passages between what was read tonight, you will see how God humorously and with so much irony, for his glory, defeated evil. He allowed just enough rope for evil to hang itself. He allowed just enough drunkenness, just enough heartache, just enough abuse of power, just enough insecurity, just enough humble people like Esther to weave together his story in Esther's life and then weave together his story to protect and deliver his people. 
because it just so happens that Esther was a Jew living in Susa. It just so happens that Xerxes was a Nimwit. It just so happens that Vashti refused his summons three years, eight years earlier. That just so happens that Xerxes had defeated the Greeks and he was looking for acceptance for a new wife and it just so happens that Esther was that wife that would be there. It just so happens that Mordecai discovered this plot in chapter 2 to kill Xerxes, but he wasn't rewarded for it, but it was written down in the Chronicles and it just so happens that the night between the first and second banquet, Xerxes had those Chronicles read out to him. It just so happens that Haman was hung on the same gallows that he had built for Mordecai because it just so happens that God was in this story the whole time. Isn't Esther amazing? The more you read it, the more you smirk at how God is just in control. So if you can see that in Esther, can you not see that God is weaving together your life? Just stop and consider all of the tiny details of your life, that you are in your seat, in this room, in this city, in this state, in this country, and in this, this year, 2020, the worst year of our generation. God has weaved that together for his purposes in your life. Just as he providently weaved together the story of Esther, he is providently weaving together your story for his purposes. And you need to understand that you are a precious thread in his grand masterpiece of history. So when it seems that he's absent, trust me that he is there. I mentioned before about how Joel and I were going to have this conversation that um, we were going to end it. Obviously, that didn't happen. But months later, I, it, it wasn't forgotten about, but we never spoke about it. And I asked Joe, how come you didn't want to have that conversation with me anymore? And she said, I don't know, but the next time I saw you, I just felt like my heart had changed and I didn't want to have this conversation anymore. And I was willing to give you a go. So God molded me and shaped me in my waiting and my suffering, but at the same time, he was molding and shaping and preparing Joe in her waiting, and in the end, he weaved us together. Yeah. When it seems like he is absent, trust me that he is there. And he proves that you are a precious thread in his story, because it just so happens that 500 years after this story, a little baby was born in Bethlehem, whose family was actually from Nazareth. And he needed to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. And it just so happens that Caesar Augustus made a census that, that year. It just so happens that that baby boy will grow up to live the perfect life, die for the sins of the world, and just so happens that he fulfilled all of these countless prophecies of the future coming Messiah. And it just so happens that his ministry and his, the gospel that he preached came during the time of the greatest peace in Roman history. And that the, because of the Roman roads and because of the peace in the Roman Empire, the gospel was able to spread like wildfire. And here we are today, still worshipping that same man, Jesus. God weaved all of this together through all of history, and he weaved it together for your story because he loves you. He wrote himself into your story. He wrote himself into your story. You see, Esther is just a tiny glimpse a tiny glimpse at the wonder of the redemption story that God has written in your life. Esther's just a tiny glimpse at the wonder of the redemption story that God has written in your life. I want to close quickly with um, 
Uh, how do we even wait on the Lord? How do we wait on the Lord? Because it's a very abstract thing. Now, I've got to make a disclaimer. This message is not an excuse to wait and do nothing. If you're doing nothing, don't continue to wait on the Lord in your nothingness. This message, um, I, hope, I pray that it's for the people that are struggling to wait. They don't know what to do next. They don't know what's happening next. And to encourage you in your waiting. I want to give you five applications, quick applications to go away with. Number one, ask God for wisdom. How often do you actually ask God for wisdom? James 1.5, if any man, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and will be given, it will be given to him. The King James says that it will be given liberally, over and over and over again. If someone if a friend has come to me and they say, I don't know what to do in this situation, I don't know what to do about this woman or about this degree or what I'm supposed to do for work, I, I, sh I share this first with them. And we've established that you believe God's word is true, yes? And this is a promise. This verse is a promise that if you ask God for wisdom and it comes from a place of admitting that you lack wisdom, it is a promise that he will give it to you. And not just give a little bit of it to you, he will generously give it to you. He will overwhelm you with wisdom. And if you are still saying, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, well then, do you trust God's word or not? Do you trust his promises? Sometimes the wise thing to do is to just wait and do nothing. The second thing I'd encourage you to do is ask God for courage. As a theme verse says, be of good courage. Like Esther, how she had courage. Because it's hard to wait, isn't it? As we said before, it's torturous to wait and it's scary. You don't know what that, uh, that doctor is going to say. You don't know what your exam results will be. You don't know if you're going to get that job, if that person will accept you. So we can't do it alone. We need to do it as a community, as a family, and we need to ask God to give us the courage to wait. And remember that courage isn't the absence of fear. It's pushing on in strength through those fearful and scary situations. And when you ask for courage, it's a promise that God will strengthen your heart. Number three, appreciate history. Now, I don't... I know some people, they just can't stand history, and that's fine. I know that it's overwhelming and it's boring for a lot of people, but change your perspective and see and appreciate how God has orchestrated all of the details of history for his story in you. Because that's what history, history is. It's his story. Appreciate history. Number four, appreciate your story. Look at your life the good and the bad, and contemplate the wonder that a sovereign God who cares about your story, that he would write himself into your story. And when you remember how God had me back then and he looked after me when I waited on him, remember that now in your waiting. Wait on him and recall how he's been there for you before and he was there for you now. And number five, adore the cross. Adore the cross as the band can come up on stage welcome them up. Adore the cross. 
take strength that Jesus, he waited 30 years to go to, the, to, to begin his ministry. He waited another three years. He waited on the Lord in the garden to have strength to suffer for you. And on the cross, he proved just how precious your story is. And on the cross, God wrote himself into your story.